0: Uh, I'm a little winded right now, just a little bit. Yeah, I know. I'm 50, but I can still dance. I can still jump. What do you think God gave me these legs for? If you got an arm, move it. You got a mouth, move it. You got whatever you got to move, shake it. You know, that's just shake it for Jesus. That's good. I, I I just appreciate the spirit of worship and celebration. I really think that, Dad just delights, dances with us when we dance, just delights in the song. Just, we open up our heart, and he just pumps joy into it and celebration. This is what God's been doing through eternity, and he's just inviting us in. On, here, get caught up in our love. Get caught up in our joy. That's what, what genuine worship is about. We can do it individually, we can do it collectively, but it's about opening our hearts and just pouring ourselves out, and he just starts injecting some of himself into this, and we get transported to a different place. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. It's really good to see all of you here this morning. We are continuing our study on the book of Luke, have been for some time, will be for some time to come, uh, maybe until the Lord comes back, we'll see. But uh, this is what we do, we want to worship God passionately and then we just study the word passionately. And uh, it's devoid of any entertainment factor, we just like to chew on this word. Uh, I want to entitle this message, The Return." We're now proceeding on in our our teaching on Luke chapter 12, Um, and this is called The Return because, as we'll see here shortly, it's about the return of Jesus Christ. He's coming back, and uh, we need to know about that. That's that's, that's good news. Last week, we talked about how the foundation for uh, living without worry is having a trust in Dad, Abba Father, a trust, and uh, letting go of the things of this world and having all of our treasure in heaven. And there we saw that the father, dad, delights, delights in giving us the kingdom. We don't have to beg him for it. We don't have to, you know, uh, plead with him or impress him or anything. He gets something out of the deal. It gives him pleasure to give us the kingdom. And that really was a picture of God that was just, it captures the essence of the free and outlandishly merciful and loving uh, and beautiful God of the Bible, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. What is amazing and I'm sure if you have been a Bible reader at all, uh, you have noticed this. And it really comes out in the teachings of Jesus. That you can have this sort of picture of God who just delights in us and sings over us and displays his love and mercy and grace and it's too good to be true. You can have that and then right next to it, you can find verses that are really in your face, tough. Uh, even harsh warning passages about judgment. Uh, And sometimes it's hard for us to put those two things together. Now, we're going to need to put those two things together this morning because last week was all this beautiful, free, uh, grace of God thing who delights in giving us the kingdom. This message, folks, is in your face tough. Can you handle the truth? (laughs) You're tough enough to handle the truth. But here's the thing. We can't forget last week's message when we turn to this. We sometimes have trouble putting this stuff together. Uh, and if we do, I think it's because we either don't understand love or we don't understand uh, discipline. There's these harsh discipline passages, like the one we're going to be talking about here this morning. Um, some people think that love is all just warm, fuzzy feelings, mushy-gushy stuff. Uh, and, and they have trouble thinking, uh, understanding how love can sometimes be tough and confrontational and, and, and result in discipline. But it can. Others of us have trouble on the discipline side of things. How can discipline be loving? Uh, If you were raised in a family like mine, I never got the point that the purpose of discipline was love. Now, if that was the intention of mom in disciplining me, she didn't communicate it very well. I associate punishment or discipline with somebody just losing their cool. That's my idea of God's wrath, you know, if I'm not careful, I can interpret that out of my own experience it means God just lost his cool uh, and and he gets mad. Punishment is what happens when uh, the parent can no longer control themselves and they take their frustration out on you. Now, that is not God's motive operandi, if you will, when it comes to punishment. But this is why we have to be careful that we hold these two things together. God is love. His essence is love. His being is love. He can't operate any other way than expressing who he is, and that is love. And so even when God confronts us and warns us and disciplines us, he does it out of love. It's not about him losing his cool or anything of the sort. It's an expression of love. Now, it may not seem like that to us, but that's where we got to trust, that dad always has our best interests in mind. Luther said somewhere something like this. I think it was in his table talks. He, uh, the, the reformer, uh, Protestant reformer Luther said, The heat of God's wrath is simply the heat of God's love when you resist it. And there, there's some truth to that. It's always motivated and driven by love. Okay, so remember, what we're going to read in this passage, we have to put in the context of God's love. But it's in your face tough stuff. So starting with Verse 35 of chapter 12, Jesus said, be dressed, be ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they could immediately open the door for him. He says, be ready, like servants. The word like there lets you know that he's giving you a parable, an analogy. The kingdom of God and life is like this. And as with all parables and analogies and metaphors in the Bible or elsewhere, everything hangs on you getting what the point of the the parable or the metaphor is and what it isn't. A metaphor and a parable captures a truth and communicates a truth, but it doesn't try to communicate the whole truth. The point of this parable we'll see here shortly is about how we should live. The point of the parable is not to teach us something about God. So it's not a parable about God, it's a parable about us. Uh, you'll see that a little bit later on. Uh, the master went away for a wedding feast, and we know from the culture of the, that time that those wedding feasts could go on for weeks or even months if you had to travel a ways to get there. And so here's a master who went uh, away, left his servants in charge of the house, and uh, he's going to be gone for an indefinite amount of time, and they don't know when he's coming back. But they're, 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 they're taught to stay dressed and keep their lamps burning, Which simply is to say, always be ready for the master to return home. You don't know when he's going to return home, but always be ready. Even if it's in the middle of the night, be ready so that, boom, you can open the door and let him in. Then looking at verse 37 and 38. Jesus says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It's quite a role reversal. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Note there that the return of the master is good news to all who have been faithful. It's good news. Um, And the master is so pleased with them that now he plays the servant role and serves them. That's a way of letting us know that in the kingdom all hierarchies are going to come down. It's going to be a kingdom of mutual service and mutual love. Then in verse 39, Jesus says, But understand this one thing. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. Jesus intensifies here the the, uh, unexpected aspect of this parable the 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 idea of waiting and watching by reversing or by changing the metaphor a little bit and now he talks about a thief in the night nobody knows when the thief is going to strike and the thief you know intentionally comes in an hour when you don't expect well that's how the return of the son of man will be you don't know when it will happen it could happen at any time and then in verse 41 peter says lord are you telling this parable to us Or to everyone? In other words, is this just for us who are on your inner circle and who are leaders? Or is this meant for the crowd? And so Jesus will answer this question by going back to the servant metaphor, uh, but tweaking a little bit. Here's what he says. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? You need to know that in the ancient world, the wealthier states just didn't have a few servants. They had a hierarchy of servants. There's layers to this. And a servant could, uh, who proved themselves loyal and effective would be promoted in rank. And the highest rank for a servant was manager, they managed all the other servants. Uh, the job of the manager was to reflect the kind of character the, the, the kind of character the master had and to carry out the master's wishes to make sure that the staff, the servant staff, stay on task and to make sure that their needs are taken care of, that they're getting their food and things of that sort. And then Jesus says, "...it will be good for that servant whom the master finds, that, that, that manager's servant, it will be good for, uh, whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions." So once again, the main word here is good news. For the manager who's carrying out his responsibility well, it's good news when the master returns, whenever he he returns. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. This is a manager who's forgotten that he's a servant. He starts to act like he's a master and he doesn't do it in a way that reflects the character of the master. He rather uses his position of authority to make the other servants wait on him and when they they don't go along with the program, he has them beaten. He has the authority to do that. And he's got access to the wine cellar and apparently he's making good use of that. And so rather than doing the chores of the house like he was supposed to, he's, he's uh, using his privileged position for his own enjoyment in an irresponsible way and treating the other servant staff abusively. The master of that manager servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. It's an in-your-face sort of message here. Now, the phrase, cutting into pieces, literally in the Greek, it means to cut in two. And that was an idiom, a, a, an idiomatic way in the first century of, of, of saying you receive a severe punishment. It wasn't meant literally. It means you, you, you receive a severe punishment. It's a little bit like our phrase, you pierced me to the heart. We don't mean it literally, but it means that you really struck deep. Or, or sometimes, you know, kids will say to each other, Mom is going to kill you when she gets home. Well, you I don't mean it literally, but it means like you are in big trouble. Well, to be cut to pieces, he's going to cut me to pieces, means you're going to be severely punished. And you can see that by virtue of the fact that in the very next breath, Jesus says he'll be assigned a place with the unbelievers. So clearly, he's still literally intact. He's just that he's, his punishment is being assigned a place with the unbelievers. And we'll see the next verse, Jesus talking about the same servant, uses a different metaphor it's the metaphor of beating. Um, This phrase, a place with the unbelievers, is interesting. The word unbeliever is apistos. And it can be translated as unbeliever, in which case the scholars who translate it like that think that Jesus is referring to Gehenna, to hell. That's the place for unbelievers. Or it could be translated uh, unfaithful ones, those who are unfaithful. Um, In which case he's not necessarily talking about Eternal punishment, he's talking about a temporal punishment, for a servant who's been unfaithful. I believe that that second translation is better because the whole point of this passage has to do with being faithful versus unfaithful. There's nothing in this passage about believing or not believing. In fact, there's nothing to suggest that the manager doesn't believe in the manager. I mean, the manager doesn't believe in the master. He just isn't being faithful in his walk with the master. So I I suggest to you that he's referring to the place of the unfaithful ones. And then the final two verses that we'll talk about here this morning are 47 and 48. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. It doesn't go on forever, but there's a lot of them. But the one who does not know and does, and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And see, folks, here Jesus is answering Peter's question. Is this for us leaders or is it for everybody? And Jesus' response is, yes. It is for everybody because you're all called to be servants. But it's especially for you who have responsibility in the kingdom. uh, To whom much is given, much is required. Pray with me here just for a moment. Lord, I thank you for every person in this auditorium and every person who's listening through the internet or through a CD or through television. And I pray, God, that you open all of our minds and open all of our hearts to maybe receive something we didn't know before and to be challenged in ways we haven't been challenged before. For some, Lord, this might be a wake-up call to get us to begin to live vigilantly and as good servants. But, Lord God, just open us to make us receptive to your kingdom, build your kingdom in our hearts and in our minds that you may build your kingdom through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We're talking about the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. Um, Honestly, on Monday when I met with the team to start talking about this message, I was feeling some discomfort. I wasn't quite sure uh, how this was gonna go. I had buzzers that I didn't know I had about this topic. Some of you can maybe understand what I'm talking about. How many, how many folks here were uh, Christians in the early to mid-70s? Uh, how many Christians back then? Okay, maybe a fraction, about a fifth, I'm guessing. Um, well, some of you, especially if you're sort of in the charismatic camp or the strongly evangelical or fundamentalist camp, can relate to what I'm going to say now. We were obsessed with the second coming. Were some of you obsessed with the second coming? Uh, you, you got into, you know, the book of Revelation. I was saved in 74, and we were just given the book of Revelation, and we studied the book of Revelation. It was like that was the only book in the Bible that really counted. Uh, we were always talking about the end times. The way we used to witness to people in those days was by going around asking people, are you ready? And they had to go, ready for what? And I go, oh, you don't know. And we take out a little rapture chart and show them the tribulation period coming and Mark of the Beast. This was the era of the first great Christian horror flick. Uh, it was horrific in a lot of ways, not least because the acting was so bad, but uh, it was called A Thief in the Night. Do some of you remember A Thief in the Night? <laughs> Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. And now the Antichrist is going to get you, going to get Mark of the Beast. you're going to be killed, and then you're going to go to hell. And we'd scare everyone into the kingdom that way. Oh, it was... Uh, and we had that book of Revelation down, we knew, we knew that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. (laughs) It was obvious. The 10 nations of the European League of Nations was uh, the 10-headed beast in the book of Revelation and and, uh, uh, with the barcodes, man, when they came out in the early 70s everything's now marked mark of the beast here it is right around the corner we just knew it i, I heard more than one preacher talk about the, the building of the temple in jerusalem one guy actually threw a a uh, uh, um, uh, architectural blueprint of the temple that was right now as we're speaking being built in jerusalem and that was a stepping stone to jesus christ coming back this is 30 years ago now it's not built yet uh russia was the big player back then Now it's more Iran and Iraq and China. But back in those days, Russia was the great Gog and Magog that's going to come down from the north and and fulfill all these prophecies. And we were just really obsessed with all of this stuff. It got to the point where where if you called somebody and they didn't answer and you thought they should have answered, you wondered, did I miss the rapture? (laughs) I'm, I'm so serious. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It was, it was I, I had a friend who almost had a nervous breakdown because he came home and his mom wasn't there and she always was there and the pot was boiling on the oven and he was sure he missed the rapture. He falls on the floor convulsing in tears as mom walks in the door and goes, what's wrong with you? Like, but that was kind of the, the climate. And for those of you who don't know, the rapture is the belief that, that when Jesus returns, he's gonna, uh, it's kind of, I don't know any other word to describe it, but suction Christians up into the air and we're gonna leave, just disappear up in the air, and um, uh, it it comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll meet the Lord in the air, and uh, uh, so that was the belief, and we thought it could happen any moment. Now, I came to the conclusion that that was not the healthiest way to live out the Christian life, (laughs) for a lot of reasons. In fact, I really came to the conclusion that that way of approaching things is fundamentally mistaken and wrongheaded, and I wanted to explain why. Why? It's why you will never hear me preach a sermon you never have and you never will uh, that tries to specifically correlate a particular event that's going on in the world now with a particular verse that someone thinks is a prophecy about that event. Uh, I just don't go there. Um, I get people, people get frustrated with me for not going there. They want that. It's juicy. It's exciting. You know, guess who the Antichrist is. Tell us how the book of Revelation is being played out right now. Some people have left the church for that reason because I don't talk about end times in that kind of particular way. But there's a reason for it, and I'm going to tell you what it is. Uh, as I read a little bit more and got a little bit more education, I, I, I learned that throughout history, there have been people predicting the end of the world since Jesus left. Uh, Christians have been predicting the end of the world. And if you get on the inside of what they were thinking, you can understand why, given their situation, and they applied this verse and that verse, and, and, and uh, they really thought the world was going to end in their lifetime, and so far they've all been wrong. Um, I became aware as I read a little bit more and got a little bit more education of how uh, uh, the variety of ways that some of these passages that people take to be end times passages can be interpreted. Uh, one of the things that really surprised me when I first went to seminary is that um, I thought everyone throughout history had always believed in the rapture because that was just what I was given when I became a Christian in 1974, a literal sucking out of believers into the air. And I was shocked to find out that nobody in all of church history believed that until the early 19th century. And then so far as I can tell, it started with a peasant farmer girl who... Believed she got a revelation that that verse was to be taken literally. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which says we'll go out to meet the Lord in the air. No one had thought of taking that literally until she got this revelation. And then she took Matthew 24, which talks about one being taken and one being left behind. And she reinterpreted it. Up to up till that point, everyone assumed that, and most scholars today think, that the one taken was the unfortunate one. The Roman soldiers came, and it was about persecution and being arrested. So the one taken is the unfortunate one. The one left behind was the one who, who escaped uh, the, the, the persecution. But this lady turned it all around and said, no, the one taken is the blessed one. And, and the one left behind, that's the unfortunate one. But that was a new thing in history. It just kind of blew me away. I didn't know that. I learned that the book of Revelation can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Uh, I was surprised to find out that the majority of people throughout history and the majority of scholars today don't think that that is a book that is primarily about the future. Uh, that, that, that's a fairly recent reading of the book of Revelation. I didn't know that. Um, it always struck me as odd, to be honest with you here, and I'm always trying to be honest with you. But I, I thought it was odd that God would put a whole book of the Bible in the Bible that would only become clear the last seven years of history, and that, after all, the Christians are gone and it's too late. It just struck me as odd. That, you know, people, it, it, they'll have great hindsight, but by then it'll be too late. I, I just struck, thought that as odd. But the majority of scholars think that this, this is a, an apocalyptic book. That's the genre or the kind of literature it is. And they often spoke of future things to communicate... Timeless realities. It has a future application, but it also communicates truths that are going on, you know, uh, all the time in different places with different degrees of intensity. But it means that, in that view, uh, trying to correlate specific events with specific passages in Revelation uh, just is, is misinterpreting the Book of Revelation. And as I read more and learned a little bit more, I, I found that some of the metaphors that are used to describe the end times were not meant to be taken literally. Uh, For example, the the phrase that the sun will grow dark and the moon will turn to blood and the stars will fall from the sky. Those were standard metaphors that were used. In fact, you find them several times in the Bible. And no one took those literally. It was like saying it's raining cats and dogs in our culture. We don't mean it literally, uh, but it was a way of saying in the ancient world, the world as you know it is coming to an end. That's why you find these phrases being repeated even though it, it never, the sun never literally grew dark or, and the, blood, this, the moon never literally uh, turned to blood and the stars never literally fell to the ground. Three times in the book of Revelation it talks about the stars being cast down to the ground and they fall to the ground like, like, like figs, it says in the book of Revelation. I remember hearing a preacher in my early fund, fund, fundamentalist days of Christianity who was saying, uh, don't listen to what those liberal scientists tell you, that those are giant balls of helium out there, billions of miles away. Uh, my Bible says that they're the size of figs, and one of these days they're going to fall to the ground. I rest my case. <laughs> well, folks, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the world as you know it coming to an end. So. Um, I, I just came to see that that, that that way of approaching things, that literal way, of reading the, the book of Revelation like it was the last seven years of history or something of the sort was, was just wrong headed. And I also came to believe that it was something of a, of a distraction, in fact, a massive distraction to obsess on end time stuff, to obsess on whether the rapture is literal or figurative or whether it's going to happen before the tribulation period or during the tribulation period or after the tribulation period. Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? And is the tribulation three and a half years or seven years or 14 years? Those are your options, folks. And it's, man, you talk to some folks, and if you don't have the right view of the tribulation period, I don't know if you're really even going to be in the rapture. I mean, And then there's a tri- is a the tribulation period before or after the millennium? And is the millennium literal or is it figurative? and on and on and on and who after all is the antichrist and obsessing on that stuff well I ask myself the question what possible difference could that make honestly it has about the same relevancy as us sitting around and speculating how we're going to die Will it be a car wreck or cancer? If it's cancer, will it be in my, you know, kidney or in my lungs? You know, if it is in my lungs, will I free, Will I get radioactive treatment or not? If I, well, you know what? It will take care of itself. Deal with it when it comes. Right now, live. You know, it, it's a And I honestly came to the conclusion that a preoccupation with those sorts of details borders on divination, which the Bible consistently forbids. Divination is where you're trying to, like, get a crystal ball and peek into the future to satisfy your curiosity. Reading the Bible like it's a cryptogram, and you're trying to decode it, spending enormous amounts of time and energy trying to assess who is what and when it happens and how it happens, is not all that different from going to a tea leaf reader or a tarot card reader to find out the details of how you're going to die. You see, it really comes down to almost a form of divination. It's a little bit like the servants of the household in the parable that we're talking about. And they're supposed to be taking care of the house, but instead they spend all the time staring out the window, arguing with each other about when and how the master will return. If you're obsessed with when and how the master is going to return, you're not taking care of the house the way the master wants you to take care of the house. You're really acting sort of like teenagers sometimes act when mom and dad leave for a little bit and they say, don't trash the house and it better be clean when we come back. Instead of taking care of the house, the teenagers are always looking out the window trying to figure out when exactly is mom and dad going to come back. Will they come up the side of the road this way or will they come down the road this way because we want to be able to see when it's happening so we can quick get ready and take care of the house. Well, see, that's not being faithful to what mom and dad told you to do. That's trying to be shrewd and trying to outsmart mom and dad. Uh, Look at the point of the passage That we read today is that we don't know when and it will come at an unexpected time. That's about all we need to know, so be faithful. And so if Jesus says you don't know and it will come unexpected, how about we take him at his word and quit trying to figure out when and how he's going to return and just get around to the work of being faithful. (laughs) That's the point of the passage. You don't know when, so be faithful. And see, see, it's just, it strikes me as bizarre. There's so much in the house that needs to be done. Uh, we live in a world where there's people who are starving and there are people who are homeless and there are people who are lost and people need the, the, the good news and there's so much urgent kingdom work to get done. And yet we still have folks that are sitting around arguing over and putting enormous time in and enormous ink and selling a lot of copies of their books on the rapture charts and, and the, the precise chronology of how and when the master is going to come home. No, we don't know when. It could be tonight. It could be a ten thousand years. We don't know when. So let's be ready. Let's live every day and every hour as though it was our last. And let's be faithful. And that's all we got to worry about. If you're faithful, you don't need to worry about when and how. In fact, if you're faithful, the return of the master is good news. So again, you don't have to worry about when and how. So let's break down this passage. Uh, Very quickly, we got three major points that this passage is getting at, and none of them have to do with end times speculation. Point number one is simply this: very simple. The Master is coming back. Jesus is going to return. It's going to happen suddenly. We don't know when. It could happen at any time. Could be today, or it could be a thousand years or ten thousand years. We don't know, and it doesn't matter because our point is not to figure that out. Our point, our call, is to be faithful. It tells us there's coming a time when God will say about this whole epoch of world history that we're a part of right now, done. There's a purpose he's trying to achieve in this epoch of world history. It's about acquiring a bride and and things of that sort. And when that purpose is achieved, God will say, done. Jesus will come back. He'll establish establish the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, He'll restore creation to the way creation was meant to be. And that kingdom will last forever. But this one won't. This world is coming to an end. It's finite. It means then, it's a reminder to us that we shouldn't get too attached to this epoch, to the world as we see it now. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, And so don't get too attached to the world that we have right now, to the life that you have right now. It's going to come to an end. Uh, It's a reminder that we're not to put too much hope. And the leaders of the various nations or too much hope in the nations themselves or too much hope in the militaries or anything of the sort or too much hope in what technology is going to develop because it's all going to come to an end. And it means we shouldn't get too bent out of shape about what leader is over what nation, about what nation is doing, what a military is doing or, or what technology is developing. Uh, there are some things that can concern us there, but we shouldn't get too out of, bed, out of shape out of that because we know that God determines when it's going to end. I really don't think that God's up there saying, oh my gosh, they're going to blow up the world before, before I want it to be blown up. I, I don't think he sweats that one. He's the sovereign Lord of history. This thing's not going to come to a close before he wants it to come to a close, so we don't have to sweat that. It's going to come to an end, but not before God wants it to. Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about the things of this world. We just don't worry about them, as we said last week. But that leads to my second point. The Master is returning, and we are called to be faithful servants in God's house. We are in charge, entrusted with God's house, and to be about His business. Now, see, in my earliest form of Christianity, uh, the job was to escape the house. He's coming back, He's going to take us out of this house. This house is going to be trashed and destroyed. So why would you worry about the house? Our, you know, our our motto was, you know, just get be rapture ready. That was the phrase. Are you rapture ready? and grab someone hand on the, someone's hand on the way up, and that's about all you can really you know, hope to do. What's the point of caring about poverty in this world right now, or injustice, or violence, let alone animals or the environment? Why would you care about that stuff? This whole house is, is going to hell in a handbasket, as we said. And uh, so what's the point of, of trying to... You're just rearranging furniture on the Titanic. Liberals care about that stuff, because they don't really believe in the rapture, but we are rapture ready. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, that was it. It's like... Now, here's the thing. Um, This is his house. And as I read the scripture, he cares about his house. Yes, he's going to rejuvenate the house. There's going to be an extreme makeover when he comes back. Uh, But he still cares about the house right here and right now and he's entrusted us with a responsibility towards that. It's true that we're not going to solve the problem of poverty on a global basis until Jesus returns. I I don't think we're going to think our way out of that issue. That's true. But we're still supposed to manifest God's character and and, and care about the poor uh, because this is his house and the poor people are in his house and so he wants the poor people being taken care of in his house. That's our responsibility. And it's true that we're not going to get rid of injustice until Jesus returns, but we're still supposed to manifest God's character and purge injustice out of our own life and to have passion, a passionate concern for those who are suffering uh, and, and are oppressed under injustice. Why? Because this is God's house, and God doesn't like injustice going on in his house. And it's true that we're not going to totally get it, think our way out of racism until Jesus returns. But that doesn't mean we don't care about racism. We're called to manifest God's heart for a one new humanity that, divide, that tears down all the walls that divide us. Why? Because this is his house, and he doesn't like racism going on in his house. And we're the ones entrusted to do something about that. And it's true that we're not going to get rid of violence until Jesus returns, but we're still supposed to manifest God's peaceful character by purging violence out of our own life and committing to be peacemakers. Why? Because this is his house, and he doesn't like violence going on in this house. And yes, folks, even the animals. Uh, it's true that the animal kingdom won't have us act together until Jesus returns, but God still entrusts us with the animals uh, and they express his character by how we treat animals. Why? Because this is his house and those are his pets and we're the ones entrusted to take care of his pets. And it's true that the environment will be to some degree screwed up until Jesus comes back. But you know what? We're still supposed to be good stewards of the environment. Why? Because it's his house. And, and, and that's his heir and, and his trees and his grass, and we're the ones who are trusted to be good stewards of all that. What it means is this. The idea that I had in the mid-'70s and that a lot of us had, that we're just supposed to get saved and then preach the gospel to a few other people and grab their hands on the, on the way of escaping this house, that is the wrong mindset. Um, the idea that you just believe and wait till you die or wait till Jesus comes home, I, 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 that's the wrong mindset. We're called precisely because the manager's coming back. And he's going to do an extreme makeover. We're called to lay the groundwork for that right now. We're called to take care of the house. We're called to carry out the, the, the jobs that he has given us. Now, it's important to remember that this is a parable. And a parable is there to communicate a truth, but not all truth. And so a person could look at this parable and and get the impression that Jesus was here and then Jesus left and now we're on our own. He just gave us a bunch of rules to carry out on our own. Well, that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is about how we're to live vigilantly. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, you find that, yes, Jesus did leave physically and he'll return physically, but in the meantime, he's still present in a spiritual way through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he has not left us alone. And we're not supposed to do this on our own. Uh, This isn't just a a work ethic that we're to live by. In fact, you read the rest of the New Testament and you learn that we can't do this on our own. We can only do this as God is pumping life into us and as we're, we're, we're learning how to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the first act of faithfulness is to surrender our autonomy from God and surrender our independence and learn how to walk dependent on him, yield to him as he now is going to help us, through us, take care of this house that he's a part of. To be faithful then is not just to have a set of rules that you live by, It's to be yielding to the spirit, to be living in community as you're learning with others how to yield to the spirit and to submit to God and to submit to one another. And what Jesus is saying is this, be faithful in doing that 24-7. Don't ever coast, don't ever get lax because you don't know when I'll be coming back. Which leads to my third point, which is the funkiest point. Number three, according to this passage, we will be rewarded and or punished based on our faithfulness. We'll be rewarded or punished based on our faithfulness. Now, most Protestants, who probably constitute the majority of people hearing this message right now, most Protestants don't have a place in their theology to hang this verse. Because these are servants who are punished. They're not eternally punished. They're not reprobate. They're, they're, they're punished but they're still servants. They're part of the household. And we don't know where to put that because there's a, the dominant Protestant perspective is that when Jesus returns or when you die, you immediately go either to heaven or to hell. And if you go to heaven, you're immediately made perfect. There's no room for discipline there. Or you go to hell in which there's nothing but discipline. And so what do we do with a passage like this? Now, it will help to have a little perspective on this. So I'm going to give a little short lesson in church history. I promise it won't be boring. Listen up. Uh, Up until the 16th century, the vast, vast majority of Christians believed that before you enter into uh, heaven, you have to take a shower. It's not that your sins aren't forgiven because they were because of Jesus Christ, but your character needs to be refined. Insofar as you're not conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, you have to become, actually in your character, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And everything that's not consistent with, 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 with Christ in your life has to be purged away. And this came to be called purgatory, which was the place of purging, where the stuff in your life is refined away. Now, that belief degenerated over time in several ways. Um, it became, instead of a place where we uh, grow and, and, and get refined and have the stuff, in our, the gunk in our life burned away, rather than that, it became a place where you pay for your sins, where you actually atone for your sins. But see, the Bible clearly teaches that only Jesus atones for our sins. And we don't need to, he he did it well. We don't need to keep on atoning for our sins. And so that began to cause problems. It became a place, especially among the common folks, where you go and God's getting even with you. Uh, You know, and and, uh, you're atoning for your sins. Secondly, the time in purgatory got longer and longer and longer. And the state in purgatory got worse and worse and worse. Till by the time you get to the Middle Ages, They were teaching that you could spend thousands and thousands and thousands of years in purgatory and it was as bad as hell. It became sort of a mini hell. And uh, that's where you go to pay for your sins. And then the worst degeneration happened when some church leaders came up with a brilliant fundraising idea and that was that you could buy time off of purgatory. It was called indulgences. The church would indulge you. Uh, and you could buy time for yourself or time for a loved one out of purgatory, and it is as hot as hell. And so you're highly motivated to stay out of there. And so they would have people, you know, you, you loved your wife, your wife died, well, she had some areas of her life that weren't quite Christian, so she's not a purgatory right now. You can almost hear her screaming, can't you? For a mere $10,000, you can lessen her time in purgatory by 10,000 years. Bingo! Uh, best fundraising scheme ever hit on, and that's how a lot of the cathedrals in Europe were built. Okay, the Protestant Reformation was initially based on that abuse. When Martin Luther in 1517 nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, uh, it was mainly his objecting to the indulgences. He wasn't initially getting rid of purgatory, just the abuse of purgatory uh, on the basis of indulgences. Later on, some friends talked him into abandoning the idea of purgatory altogether. But initially, it was just based on the abuse of indulgences. Uh, When he rejected the idea of purgatory altogether, here's what happened. With that came a belief, for the first time in church history, that when you die or when the Lord comes back, you're instantaneously and magically made perfect. The struggle of going through what we call sanctification, which is simply the process of of, of learning how to yield to God and being disciplined and growing in Christ, uh, all of that becomes unnecessary the minute you die because, boom, you're automatically made perfect. Either you either go to heaven or hell and it's instantaneous. With that came the idea, over time, that being discipled, being sanctified, becoming Christ-like, is sort of optional. It'd be nice, but it's, it's really... For the super saints, um, because why really go through all the hassle of the spiritual disciplines and fasting and, and, and getting close to God and all that, getting sin out of your life? Why go through the hassle of that if it's going to be done instantaneously the minute you die anyways? I'll just take the free option. Thank you very much. In the meantime, I'll just enjoy myself here, which is why, to a large degree, we've got a Christendome today where we've got a lot of people whose lives are completely unchanged, but they're just waiting around to go to heaven. You see what happens there? Now, I'm not at all reintroducing the idea of purgatory. Uh, It's all wrapped up with the idea that you pay for your own sins and only Jesus can pay for your own own sins. But on the other hand, I do believe that to some degree, the baby was thrown out with the bathwater in the Reformation. Because you find in this passage that we're studying today, and you find it in many other places in the New Testament, the teaching that there is a disciplining for believers, a judgment of believers, even after death or when the Lord comes, whichever comes first. For example, it says in Romans 14, you then, talking to believers here, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat your brother or sister with contempt looking down on them? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. What Paul is saying there's this, God is judge, you're not, shut up. And if you're judging uh, your, your brother or sister looking down on them, well, you should really be reminded that God is your judge too. And we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Second Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether bad or good. Now he's talking to believers here. This isn't a salvation judgment thing, but there is some kind of a judgment that is going on here. Good or bad. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation, referring to the foundation of Jesus Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. Judgment Day is not about God getting getting even or about God being mad. It's always about truth, exposing what is true then Paul says it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Now, it doesn't touch the foundation. Okay, that's there. That's Jesus Christ. That's salvation. But what was built on it, that gets tried by fire. And As we'll see next week, it's the fire of God's love and the fire of God's justice, which is really one and the same. If what has been built survives, because it was built by, on, with gold or silver or precious stone, the builder will receive a reward. In fact, fire purifies that stuff. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. If it was made of this wood or hay or stubble, it's burned up. You're going to suffer loss. And yet you will be saved because the foundation isn't touched, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And that was just an expression in the ancient world that was sort of like our getting by by the skin of your teeth. You'll be saved, but just through the flames. It's like It referred to a person who, whose house was on fire. They got out alive, but everything they owned was, was burned up. Now, this fire, and we'll talk about this more next week because Jesus in the passage we'll be dealing with next week, he says, I've come to set a fire. Um, And the fire is the fire of God's love and justice, as we'll we'll show next week. It purifies everything that is consistent with the kingdom and burns up everything that's not. And it's not necessarily a pleasant experience. It's not about paying for your sins. Jesus did that. It's not about God being mad at you. No, it's... uh, he's pleased to give you the kingdom. In fact, the reason he wants to burn away everything inconsistent with the kingdom is so he can give you the kingdom. Everything God does, he does out of love. It's about God loving us. It's about God refining us. It's about God disciplining us to prepare us to enter into the, uh, the eternal kingdom. It's about God's tough love. What it means, and what we'll see more next week, is this. You'll find a number of teachings where Jesus is saying, says to us, sanctification which is the process of learning to yield to God, learning to live not for yourself, but to live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you, learning to live God's way, the kingdom way. That is not an option, folks. In fact, what we'll see next week is that Jesus says, you either get that now or you got to get it later. And it's really in your interest to get it now. It's not an option. God's going to teach us how to walk with us and how, to, how, how, how for us to walk with him. And Jesus is saying, the time to get it is now. We don't know when the master's returning and we don't know when we're gonna die. So today is the day to become a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Today is the day to become a faithful servant. Today is the day to commit to doing the work of the house that he's entrusted us with. This hour is the hour to be submitted to God. This hour is the hour to uh, break, to move out of strongholds in your life. Don't put that off because the future's not given to you at all. That's the point of this passage. Whether it's your death or the Lord coming back, you, the future's not guaranteed, so now is the time to yield to the Spirit just for a moment open up your heart or if you want to close your eyes you can and i want the holy spirit to just sear into our heart and mind what he wants us to take from this message and the the question that this passage asks of us is really this question are we ready are you ready if the lord comes back in 30 seconds which for all i know he might Or if you have a heart attack or a brain aneurysm in 30 seconds, which for all I know you will, are you ready? Are you being a faithful servant? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Are we yielding to the spirit and allowing him to transform us? Are are we in a community with others who are helping us learn how to be faithful? Are we taking care of God's house? Are we expanding the kingdom? Are we sharing the good news? in word and deed are we manifesting the outrageously beautiful character of God to all we come in contact with Holy Spirit communicate to us what we need to learn if there's stuff that needs to be burned away help us to burn it now Holy Spirit will you burn it away now and free us from that keep us growing keep us faithful keep us vigilant I pray Lord God that for all of us this would not be bad news but rather good news you are coming back This epic with all of its violence and war and sin will not last forever. That's good news. But Lord, we want to be a people. Help us to be a people who aren't just okay getting by by the skin of our teeth and aren't just okay with the fact that we're saved, but Lord, a people who want to hear you say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. Develop in us a character that strives for that. I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here and if you have any need that you'd like to have prayed for, if God's working in your life right now about something that needs to be burned away, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks or if you want to just pray on your own up at the altar, I encourage you to do that. If you're here this morning and you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to, you're not ready, so you need to come forward here and talk to these folks they they'd love to explain to you what it is to become a kingdom person. And now in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the power and love of God, I send you out to build the kingdom to be faithful stewards of God's house in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. Go build the kingdom.